there's something in the earth there that maybe, you know, I've, I've felt that out at um, Uluru. Been on a walk out there. I felt the same feeling. There's something very powerful in the earth there. And Byron, that area is like that. Something there that I've always been drawn to. I always thought I would end up there. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is about that area that is so pleasing to me. Whenever I go there, I just feel, I just, I just love it. The Buttery. Immortalised in Paul Kelly's iconic song is Australia's most famous drug and alcohol service, a therapeutic community celebrating 50 years. Hi, I'm George Katzi. And I'm Mandy Nolan. And this is the story of this special place and what brings people to their door. I'm George Katzi and I'm joined by Mandy Nolan. And this is To Their Door, a podcast celebrating 50 years of the buttery. It's a TC, a therapeutic community for drug dependence in a disused Norco dairy facility about 15 minutes from Byron Bay on beautiful Bundjalung country. Over the next few episodes, we'll be your guides to take you to the place and to meet the people as we work out what makes the buttery so extraordinary. People everywhere know about the buttery from the Paul Kelly song to her door. It's sort of part of the mythology about the buttery. It's a classically poetic Paul Kelly narrative song about a man who in the throes of addiction lost his family but then found recovery and hope at the buttery and then makes the journey home to her door. It always gives me goosebumps. Yeah, it's a, it's a rock and roll redemption song. I think one that has told so many people that change is possible and it's put the name the buttery into folklore. Don't think you could say that about any other rehab. It's weirdly romanticised. Sort of like somewhere in the Byron hinterland is a magical place where hope lives. So in the spirit of To Her Door, we take you to their door. I'm speaking with Delta K. Delta is a traditional owner in this beautiful area where we're speaking. This is um, Araqual country in the Bundjalung Nation. Delta, I was talking before, um, well, as we were walking down, about what makes this this place so powerful um, when it comes to healing and what, what draws us here. I would love to, to hear a little bit of your perspective. I suppose growing up here um, as a Bunjung woman of Byron Bay, it's that relationship with the land. I think people are really good at having a relationship here. And by having that relationship with the land who we see as our mother, you have that responsibility to look after her. Beautiful Shire has everything from the healing properties of the ocean. Um, and not far away, you can just go to the healing properties of our fresh water. There's so many beaches where you can just sit and be. And as you can hear the bird life, you feel part of country. Mm. 
I can see why why countries so healing here in the Shire, because you can use all your senses. Um, you know, just looking at country, you you see the the ocean environment, and then you look behind you to the west, and you've got the gorgeous rainforest, and then there's the bird life, which is so prolific here isn't it doesn't matter where you are there's birds everywhere so people looking for that healing here it's the best place yeah there's so much to learn and they they open their eyes and their ears and all their senses because they want to heal that's why I love to come here each day um, and connect with country here, just like so many other people, seeking that healing. Yeah. Not realising they're walking on the uh, ancient footsteps of so many Indigenous travellers to this meeting place. Deadly, eh? It's really deadly. So as your podcasters, George and I I want to tell you a little bit about where we sit in this story. I've lived in this region for well over 30 years. And while I've never been to the Buttery as a resident, my first husband and the father of my two kids uh, went there. Then we'll be speaking to him later in, in this podcast. So for me, the Buttery was something that I not only knew about, it was a big part of my of my life as as the partner of someone who had you know, a drug dependence. I also lived in Byron Bay and shared the houses and, um, you know, apartments with lots of people that had come out of the buttery into their transition housing. So I have so many long-term friends that had been through the program. So the buttery has been, in a sense, a part of my life for over 30 years. I mean, I even took my clothes off and model for a fundraiser for the Buttery when they used to have this big portrait prize kind of fundraising thing. So um, I've even got my gear off to support to support fundraising for the Buttery. So for me, I'm very emotionally involved in these stories and have I, I'd be one of the people that holds uh, a deep attachment to believing this place is very remarkable and actually seeing and seeing what it's done for people. I know these people who've been through and seen their lives changed. Yeah, it is a remarkable place. Um, And I keep hearing that from everyone that we're talking to. So um, I'm not from this area. I'm actually from Sydney, but I've been coming here the last uh, four years as Mandy and I have been working together. We we do a lot of work in the storytelling space and getting people to kind of – you know, dig back and find a narrative about how they fit into the world and the world and placemaking and stuff. So place is really important for me as an academic. Um, I'm very interested in how um, a place fits into the community, how buildings are repurposed and transitioned to become other uses, et cetera, which is what the Buttery's been doing. We'll talk a lot about that. We'll talk a lot about the building and how that's really important to the historical narrative and that that nostalgic narrative that the Buttery holds for a lot of people and how it has transitioned and changed, but also how it's also somehow stayed the same. And it's really interesting to sort of know how that is a big part of its mythology. So, Funnily enough, as, as part of this podcast, and we're actually sitting in a house in Bangalore, which is just a couple of k's down the road from the buttery. We rented a house so that we could do recordings in, and we're sitting in here right now, and this it's a hundred-year-old house with beautiful old floorboards, etc. And um, 
a funny coincidence happened when we were talking to the person uh, who booked us the house. Yeah, I sent this email. His name is Paul Malam and part of the kind of, you know, older families that have actually lived in this region. And I asked for a little bit of an extension so we could have a bit more recording time. Told him what we were doing and he goes, oh, the buttery. Because I stayed there in 1977 when I was about 19. You know, I slept on the concrete floor when it was a drop-in centre. <laughs> I went, you are kidding. You know, they have a sticker around here, George, that says magic happens. Mm. And I know that's very hippy-trippy. But no, I'm it's not, a beautiful coincidence, well, isn't it? it? Yeah, actually, something's it really aligning does. up. Yeah. And so I went, sent an e- um, email back to Paul and went, um, I have to talk to you. So we did. It's Mandy here, Paul. How are you? Oh, hi, Mandy. How are you? Very well, thank you. So tell me um, about about when you used to stay there when it was a youth drop-in centre, Paul. Right. Uh, I stayed there once. I I had been working. I was 19 years old. I had been working as a jackaroo in central Queensland in on one of my uncle's very large cattle properties. And to put that in context, I was a vegetarian. I had uh, chest-length hair and I was a tall, skinny 19-year-old. And dare I say it, it's probably true that in 1977, I was probably the only vegetarian jackaroo in the whole of Australia. So, and I, and I, at the time, I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't, I didn't take caffeine. I lived this really very um, ascetic life, I suppose you would say. So, I turned up there. I, I um, caught uh, transport down to the Gold Coast, and I hitched from the Gold Coast. There were a lot of hitchhikers all over the North Coast then. It was unusual to go from, say, Lismore to Bangalore without picking up at least one hitchhiker. So I got a lift. I turned up at the Buttery. I I spent five months as a vegetarian jackaroo in Queensland, and I just wanted to spend some time with like-minded people. There weren't a lot of people staying there. There were probably around 10 of whom two or three were staff. And um, they were they were lovely. They were welcoming. Um, it was fairly quiet. Bangalore, to, to put this in context, I have cousins who live around Bangalore. Bangalore at the time was a very run-down place. There were, uh, there were shops that were boarded up in Bangalore. It's not the um, rather glamorous double bay version of the Byron hinterland that it is now. It was a very run-down little town. So um, I went to the Buttery. There were, there were a, about 10 people staying there. I think two or three were permanent staff, the cook, uh, the gardener, someone who did the cleaning. And I, I had a sleeping bag. I travelled everywhere, as you did in those days, with a sleeping bag. Um, we slept on the concrete floor. I'm not even sure that I had a pillow, and really I didn't need one because I slept very well. I just slept on the concrete floor. There were probably um, most of us sleeping there. It was October, so the buttery was generally open, and it was a very simple routine. My my memory is we got up and meditated early in the morning. Uh, there was – and then um, breakfast would be cooked. It was very simple, often something like – porridge or um, brown rice, something macrobiotic. And then it was a very simple routine. We generally 
hung around the buttery because there was no point going into nearby Bangalore. There was just uh, nothing there. We'd go for walks around the area. Um, it was a, a time when people read a lot. I, I, it sounds very nostalgic, but you never travelled anywhere with a, without at least one large novel in your backpack. So um, we would we would read, we would trade novels. Uh, there was a lot of discussion around the table about current issues, uh, and then we'd have we have lunch. Um, we shared in the chores, and in the evening um, there'd be a very nice vegetarian meal cooked. It was all vegetarian, uh, and um, generally there was no certainly no television. And I'm not even sure there was radio or any form of music. So generally, we sat around and chatted. Uh, some people meditated. Some people read. It was a kind of quite reclusive life, as I remember it, and that's why a lot of people went to the North Coast at the time. I, I had been influenced by Buddhism, as a lot of people were then, and the idea was if you watched a Buddhist monk, for example, folding clothes or watering a garden or doing anything, it was with total presence. The buttery was sort of about that when I was there. It was about the idea that you lived a very present life. You can't have this conversation about 50 years of the buttery without having a conversation about what was happening in this region 50 years ago. Just about two months ago, it was actually in May of 2023, because this is about the time that we're recording, the Aquarius Festival turned 50. So the Aquarius Festival and the Buttery are absolutely aligned in the timeline. It was about what was happening, not just here, but in the whole of the country. This was the early 70s. This was counterculture. These were kids who were pushing back against the conventions of their parents and looking for something else. These were the kids that came up um, to this region for the Aquarius Festival and thousands and thousands of them came and thousands stayed. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? So the Aquarius Festival, and we'll hear a little bit more about it in a moment, but at that particular time, because I was trying to work out why this area, particularly people stayed in this area, because it is magical, but did it become magical or was it magical in the first place? It was It was about getting back to nature. It was getting out of the city into into nature, into the ability to grow your own food, to, to be self-sufficient, to try something different. And I guess kind of the counterculture came with it was um, drug use and with that came drug misuse. So that's some kind yeah, of it, almost it, a part of the origin story is that it's all wrapped up into one and two birthdays within a couple of months of each other, Aquarius Festival and about six months down the track, the buttery. So we spoke to Bob Tissett, who was there in 1973 at the Aquarius Festival. And guess what, George? He's still there. He's still there, isn't he? He's absolutely still there. Just to set the scene, I had bought a derelict farmhouse and there were so many of them. God, there were so many just empty, empty farms. People had walked off them, failed dairies, failed whatever. But the whole north coast was chock-a-block full of them, which is how come we could all move in here. And, and buy these places for a song almost, really. Buttery itself 
um, exists in a file. Yeah. It's a filed. It's um, a filed battery. It's a filed Nimbin's battery. Nimbin's got one too. Yeah. Nimbin's got a, a filed battery. You know, there were so, there were dozens of filed butter factories all over the North Coast. It was that was also partly to do with consolidation, the big Norco factory in town, and everything being trucked in, like rather than small factories in each town doing butter and cream and the butter and cream being shipped down the rivers and the creeks to Lismore, which is what they used to do. Um, it all got consolidated into a big butter factory in Lismore and it came in as whole milk and then they worked it from there. Perhaps, Mandy, the secret of the buttery's success was that it, that it evolved out of a community need. And I think it's a great example of what happens when a community has access to empty spaces that they can inhabit. Yeah, I think you're right because there was so much change and flux at that time. Like the Aquarius Festival was bringing a whole new generation to a, a country area, basically. Thousands of hippie kids who created by their very existence a counterculture that has since grown and evolved over generations to become the quintessential part of the local culture that everyone identifies with who we are as a region. Absolutely. And I think there's a real synchronicity in that. See, there's people who are, but they're seeking a different way of living and then there's these empty spaces. So they took over these abandoned dairy farms um, because the dairy industry had basically been consolidating and centralising in Lismore. So these outposts weren't needed anymore. And um, the vacant buttery, it became, became a kind of sanctuary but it, like the dairy industry, it too had to evolve. So an Anglican church officer called John McKnight, he wanted a base uh, for a youth outreach that he wanted to create for Nimburn, Mullumbimby and Lismore. And John moved into the buttery in 1973 and that is where it all began. It began there and by 1980, just seven years later, the drop-in centre where Paul Malum had turned up, had evolved into a model that focused on supporting people's recovery from drug dependence. And during that period, the accommodation facilities, they expanded, they got a grant and they built a second accommodation unit. In 1979, they drew up a constitution and in 1980, they had their very first AGM, that's the Annual General Meeting. So John McKnight left uh, to take up ministry uh, in Sydney at Darlinghurst Church and Andrew Biven became the director. And this is where the program that we see today started to take its shape. So they developed uh, group therapy and the program then started to have documented rules and guidelines. And you'll hear about some of those rules and guidelines which evolved over time, but some are still very much the same. There were conditions of staying um, and there were activities like a arts and crafts program, which really became almost centre to some of the therapeutic, you know, activities. There was an entry procedure too and a really defined program. It was clearly not a drop-in centre anymore. It was a therapeutic community. And by 1981, the structure of the program, it conformed to what would be defined as a classic therapeutic community. It was stage program with eight levels. There was uh, behavioural, moral and ethical boundaries. And there was this concept of shared responsibility. I love shared responsibility. I think even as a mum, I've got five kids and I've always tried to live this ethos 
of shared responsibility, sometimes not that successful, but at the buttery, it's a core value. And I guess the buttery, in a sense, had to become a community unto itself, a community of addicts and volunteers and trained staff where decision-making was shared and everyone participated very actively in all aspects of the program. Dr. Ross Lehrman is a passionate educator and changemaker. He was the first buttery chairperson and held that role on and off until the mid-1980s. Ross was the first person we spoke to about the buttery to get the foundation story. With the 50th anniversary, there are less people around who were there at the beginning. Ross is about 80 and has some health complaints, but he's driven over from the nearby town of Alstonville, about 30 minutes away. He's in good shape and his compassion just shines through. I mean, this is a values-driven organisation and it shows up right at the start. We meet with Ross in the cream room at the old buttery. It was the first time he'd been back in 20 years. So here we are at the buttery on a very rainy day and speaking with Ross Lehman, who is, or Dr. Ross Lehman, who is the first chair of the buttery. Ross, you're just saying this is the first time you've been in here in some time. How long? Well, I was last here when I was chairperson in the, in the early 80s. Wow. And uh, I haven't been back. I've driven past many times, but I've been in Sydney most of the time since 1999 to 2016 when I came back. It's a beautiful area to live in. So what was it like today walking around and having a look? Well, I Leone took me around and I found it amazing that some of the things were still there that were there before. Oh, really? 50 like years what? ago. What have you what give well, you the, 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 the guttering, the gutter in the in the in the footpath. <laughs> the, 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 I, uh, when the Governor General Suzanne Cowan was here opening the Aussie Jackson farm at Dudgeons Lane in near Bangalore, I said to him, Please follow me. And I fell down the hole. And he said, <laughs> I'm not, because uh, it was about half a metre deep and nearly broke my ankle. And he says, I'm not going down there. <laughs> and I, so things like that. The, the, the deck out the front, out the side on the uh, northern side, which leads up to the, to the cottage that are up there and the water tank that was there, I understand now they've got water on. Wow. Water supplies and sewers coming soon. So that's great. After the floods, the local government prioritised connecting the buttery to town water. Up to that point, they were on um, tanks. Now, they are currently in the process of getting connected to the sewer. Now, some might say they're really getting their shit together. And we can see that Ross loves that there is a lot here that is unchanged. They must have got it right. I, I saw the two cottages that were built in one school holidays in summer back in the late 70s, Lisa Home and Lloyd Home, and they're still up. And I thought the white ants would have eaten those years ago, but they're still there and they've got 25 people living in them. Oh, fantastic. Good to know that your building skills back then were actually far better than well, you I wasn't they building. They, they yeah, came up they in aeroplanes with their chainsaws and their hammers in the plane from Sydney. Oh, Was I it? love that. Why did they have to come up in a, in a plane with all their Because they were on holidays. They were... They were Tradies that give, volunteered their time to put up the buildings, the supplies were brought in and the, the buildings were built and, and occupied within six weeks. The place had been owned by Norco, but in 1971, I think it was, a guy named Jack Casley bought the property and he was inventing 
a pneumatic, a air-powered system to raise houses from the floods, would you believe? That's 50, are you, are you kidding? 50 years ago he wow. was doing that yes. and he was experimenting with a pneumatic system and he used the, the, the platform, the stage area the out on the northern side here, which is still there, as his experimental site and he was using this equipment that he was improving to try that. And he became interested with John McKnight, who was a church army worker at Bangalore Parish, because John had this idea of helping people, as the, as the church army captains do. And eventually, I think John and some prayers meant that for a dollar a year, the, the Anglican church was able to rent the site. So that's how it came wow. into, and, and here we sit in it today. The room we're sitting in, which is the office that mm. has always been the office as far as I know, actually inside the walls here, they're very thick, is big, chunky, black cork. Uh, cork. Wow. It's, it's about half a metre thick and that's why it's so quiet. Because, But when we had our first meetings, we, there was no electricity because it had all been turned off. And we used to meet with a lantern. Really? And we'd hear the rats or the possums or whatever scurrying around <laughs> outside and the bats even up in the high roof. It was just amazing. Well, because it's quite a description because the office at the moment looks like just any other room. Yeah. It's got white walls, it's got a computer, it's got power and, and um, you know, uh, downlights and that. So so this was the cool room or the storage room. Yes, yeah. where they kept the cream to put on the – there was a side railway line that's just about a few metres of – to, to the west here where the train would come off the main line and pull in that carriage and they'd load up the, the cream because they, they didn't, didn't keep the, they, it was a butter factory, and they'd load up the cream and the butter and they'd take it away to, to, to Lismore, I suppose, to Norco. I was approached by the then rector of Lismore, the Anglican rector, Dick McFarlane, who was starting it off with John and a small committee and he asked me to be the chair. And after a few, I think it was a few months of that, I actually went overseas to America for three years to do my doctorate. And when I came back, I came back on the board. And at that stage, we didn't have a constitution, so I helped write the first constitution and so on, and probably all that's in the minutes these days. So so coming in to become a chairperson is... Um, it's, it's a responsibility because organisations, especially when they're starting off, are so vulnerable to kind of falling over and, and you know, look, great ideas without good support often fall over. So how did that feel for you knowing that in a way as the chairperson that you're, you're, there's a responsibility there for you, I'm sure? It was a responsibility and I'd been raised as a Christian man to care for people and, 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 and be like Jesus in a sense in, the, in action and this was an opportunity and I was encouraged by this by my family to be involved and to give the time that it took. And in fact, my kids eventually used to come out to the dress-up parties and celebrations that they had here, face painting and things in there too. And I think they didn't realise some of what why some of the residents were actually here because they were going oh. to primary school. And so I was driven to help out in, for those reasons. It was a basic value for me. And in fact, my Doctoral studies were on teachers' values. I had to learn a lot because it's something I'd never experienced before in my personal life. And um, I, I was 
learned of, for example, injecting. Some people had to have their their thumb amputated because they they so infected their hand or their finger that that was necessary. And learning all that, we used to go to workshops. People would would come and deliver that from the health department, and we learned about it fairly fast. Yeah. Because we had to negotiate the fact those that information, because the funding was always the thing that the committee, the, the management board, were trying to do, and it's just amazing today, this day in nineteen in twenty twenty three, the there's income of more than ten million dollars, and over a hundred so, so staff on the on the payroll, and back then there was nobody. And eventually we had three councillors which we had to get funding for and chase after constantly with the, with the various government facilities. I used to come out, I think it was a weekly, oh, it's hard to go back this long in my life, but I must have taken the time off out of my lecture room or something and come out here. On, I remember coming out on particularly on a Tuesday for a while on, on a regular basis just to um, help out with group work and if people volunteered to come and sit and talk and, and think things through. I wasn't a trained counsellor, but I'd done teaching and to help with aspects of motivation and behaviour change and so on with children, so it worked. And I, I was encouraged to continue to do that from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd be interested to know too at that point what what it was like. Did did, was there resistance at all in the community because it was such a new idea, I guess, and, you know, there's always a lot of stigma around drug use and I imagine around that time around injecting drug use and heroin that there was. What what was the general feeling in the community about what the buttery was doing? I wonder this. If the Binnaburra setting, which is out of town from Bangalore and not far from Clunes and a bit isolated, was a good choice. And as far as I know, it was all positive. I I, I have no recoll- recollection of receiving, even in the minutes or the secretary receiving notes, that were anti. We were, in fact, trying to negotiate the acceptance of the taking of marijuana as a board long before governments even tried to talk about it. We certainly weren't in favour of narcotics being uh, decriminalised at all because that's why the place was, 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 was existed because people were just ruining their lives as they still are in many ways. The board was forward thinking and having conversations around harm minimisation principles before they were even a thing. I felt that the program that they developed here at the Buttery was for winners. In other words, if you came here and they they had a urine testing, I think it was every day, but if it wasn't, it was regular, and there's a fridge where that was locked up and they took the samples away for pathology checking. And if you became involved and your urine was tested and you, you got chucked out, you had to promise that you weren't using whilst you were here. So... If you were in a state of, if a person was in a state of mind where they couldn't even think about that, they didn't come. So the thousands of people that have been through here had really 
been helped to make a decision to change their lives and change the path that they were following. And as a consequence, it's been purposefully successful. What happened to the those that didn't make this effort? And most of the people came from Sydney. They didn't come from local area at all. Some did. Then I guess some of those have died and overtake, overdosed and, and didn't get better. One of the things that we, we learned, we had to be very careful with our counselling team that we didn't burn them out. And they were, they were in, in dealing with a different field, a different task, and they had a counselling background. And one of the things we, we used to be very conscious of at the board level was what we called energy in, energy out. And that meant sometimes a counsellor would only work for four days because they'd be pooped and they needed a break. And so we had to, in our own minds, negotiate a different concept of work relations and conditions so that it worked for them because we had the vision that we wanted to succeed. What success was for somebody to finish the program after sometimes nine months of living here and going back to, to continue with a Narcotics Anonymous meeting attendance as they developed and redeveloped and recommenced their normal lives. And it, and it turned out years on they were still successful. So the measure was are they still an addict? Yes. Are they using? No. Mm. And that became part of the program. Some fell by the wayside, as you'd expect, but that was the measure of success. So they had the need, they had the vision, but they had to find the cash. They were literally figuring it out as they were going along. Now, the church threw in around 5,000K a year, but the rest they had to find. They had to do a lot of blue sky thinking with their limited resources. Now, there's a saying that's cliche, but I think it fits in this situation. Necessity is the mother of invention. Now, some of the key aspects of the program emerged during this period. We're constantly chasing funds and governments came and went, but funding processes, one stage was only annual, which was you were constantly changing the dollar all the time. And we invented, a, not invented, developed a program that still exists where the people who come to the residence sign over their income from their pension and they get they get a, an amount to spend for themselves, but most of the funds from their income is used for the for their food and some which is retained and used locally. And related to that was the fact that it's important that many of the people who came here still are, I would think, in need of personal skills. And so they had a shopping arrangement where two people would from the residents would go on with a shopping list that they devised with their housemates and they'd go shopping for the weekend and they'd have a couple of people who were providing for the cooking for the week and another group who were involved with cleaning for the week as well as the farm chores and the, the grounds and the hard labour <laughs> roundabout. And that was because they really needed to learn basic skills so that they could live an individual life and, and succeed. We, we actually had the uh, only one vehicle at the beginning, which was government funded, and it, John McKnight, who was the original director, he had a vision for um, 
the environment, and it was a gas-powered station wagon holding with a big tank in the back of the back of the vehicle, and it was one of the first vehicles like that around here at all. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit about, because John McKnight's dead now, he sounds like a really interesting person at the time. He sounds like he was someone, did you know him very well? I knew him uh, mainly at the meeting level. Yeah. And the work that he did here, he was very, I found him a very quietly spoken person who had lots of good thoughts. He lived in a somewhat alternative lifestyle compared to what most people would live. And he was happy to put up with the when the you deprivations. Say, when you say an alternative lifestyle, do you mean like he lived off grid, um, no power? No, no, no. He lived here sometimes. Yeah. Uh, he lived, lived in the bank. Because he was he was he was part of a ministry of his of his own, Ang- wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. He he was a, an Anglican church army captain when he came, which which was special. Did he was he a bit more of a hippie version? So, well, sort of, but they used to wear a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, though, and and eventually he became ordained. Uh-huh. And beca- I was, I actually read the lesson at his at his ordination when the bishop made him a, a deacon at All Souls Anglican Church just up the road at Bangalore. And that didn't stop him. He went on t- from here to become the priest, the rector of St John's Darlinghurst. Which is a and, and he ran a similar program also for refugees and so on, as he did here. Ross has been talking about the Anglican rector John McKnight. Now, if you want to dig right back to the origins of the buttery, you've got to go back to McKnight. Unconventional and clearly a person with strong views on social justice and compassion for the underdog. So. Look, we did a bit of a dig on him and and turn up a story in the Washington Post from around 1986 where he's in court defending an Israeli refugee accused of espionage against Israel. Clearly, McKnight is not your ordinary rector. It's amazing, isn't it? Like when you get someone who's involved in their own Christian ministry Mm. who, who, who walks the walk and talks the talk, like talks the talk and walks the walk, that seeds something like this, which is still here 50 years later, that has grown its own way since. Now, it's powerful work that you end up doing. It, Mandy, it's just amazing to me that we're still sitting in the same room that we started the meetings yeah. in with the, with with, the, with a, a lantern. I know. It's amazing because you think of this is, you know, it's, it's a story of hope, isn't it, and redemption, which yeah. I imagine is that's, that is the Christian story. Well, it is indeed. The area we live in, is, is that kind of person. And uh, I've never done a survey, but it'll be interesting to see how the locals do tick because they're very accepting, I find. So one last question I want, um, Ross, was I, I just wanted to know from that about you obviously were someone who was very busy with your academic and professional life, but you still found time to, to make this enormous contribution um, to your community. Um, by being the chair of of the buttery, what what were the values in you that that drove you to go that extra mile? That was that was my upbringing to care and share, and I had a, a very understanding wife, Judy, and and the family. The children were younger in those days. The wives to bring the children out and the family from time to time when there were functions on. Where, like you said about the community, there's always been fates or activities, not just for fundraising, but just to celebrate what was here. 
And I think that's part of the answer to why it's accepted in the community. The community come and go and see what's going on, realise, oh, they're normal people, they've got horns on their heads or uh, they're, they're normal people that just need help. Exactly. There's a car wash here on Sunday. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, we saw Mine, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine'll need it after all this wet weather. <laughs> To understand the story of the buttery, you have to hear the stories of the people who have been there. The building is kind of held together with stories. It's like a glue. There's a saying if the walls could speak, and, well, they kind of do. There's drawings and paintings and trails of past residents all through the place. We were fortunate to get the stories of past and present residents and workers, and together they create the binding and evolving narrative of the what, the who and the why of the buttery the stories of what takes everyone to their door. So we met with Kira, a 41-year-old paramedic and single mum. She speaks about how her life spiralled out of control with alcohol and she found herself at their door. So what did it look like when you put your hands up? Did well, that when you told people you are in trouble? I didn't even. It shames me and I'm full of guilt to this day, but I started mixing sleeping tablets with alcohol because they put me on them to sleep because I was so distraught from the ex-husband and um, realised that got me to a, a place of forgetfulness much quicker and I overdid it the one night when everyone, it became apparent and my daughter woke up to, you know, would have found me um, ping-ponging down the hallway, you know, in blackout and called my dad, like got my phone and, and pressed dad, thank God, and, and they came round and um, I was taken to the first emergency admission and mum was convinced I was on drugs because yeah. of my appearance but never been one for drugs but, yeah, it was just tablets, sleeping tablets. Yeah, sleeping tablets and alcohol are pretty potent. <sighs> yeah. What was that like for you? That must have been hard for you Horrendous. to be admitted to into mm. probably somewhere with your peers yeah. and people yeah. that you've worked with. So the paramedics and police arrived because I wouldn't let people in. I didn't know any of this apparently. Um, and then they called a friend around the corner. She tried and I think Dad just broke in. Yeah. And I was just so – I don't even remember the crew that picked me up. So I had to face – my peers, I had nursing staff I knew at the hospital from work. I worked there as a nurse and also a paramedic, so that was extremely distressing. My mum accusing me of being a drug, you know, like alcohol to them, to what well, to most is, well, yeah, you've had a couple of drinks. I don't see it as a drug or addiction or an issue when clearly... Isn't it funny? That, that's one of the hardest, one of the biggest barriers mm. to getting help, yes. I think, with alcohol is that yes. there's, because there's no stigma around it. Mm. Mm. People are, people tolerate and don't notice your yes. heavy levels of drinking. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's a drinker, but, you know, she's still working. She's still mum. She's still outdoor, yeah. you know, everything's fine. And I put on that. <laughs> And inside I'm just dying and anxious and, you know, I, I didn't want to die but I didn't know how to live. 
And but you made it here, which is yes. amazing. So how did you find out about the buttery? So there are many, I call them princess rehabs, where you're allowed your phone, four hours leave, go shopping, get picked up, go have a few drinks because by the time you get back, you'll blow zero. It's just horrendous. Have you go, tried those? Yes. I, yeah, princess rehabs, I call them, and, and go to group if you want. And, oh, I'm in rehab, I'm doing the right thing, and I wasn't. So gave them up and went to another a place that was infamous, no phones, five-minute call at night to family after a week and extremely strict. And my addiction didn't want me to go there because, you know, I might get better. So I went there, unfortunately, slow learner, but five times, um, and by the fifth, well, the fourth admission, I said, look, we think you need some different tactics and consider long term. So that was a short, was that a detox? 28 days. A tw- it was a short rehab. term rehab program. Yeah. yeah. So I've done a five but left early because I know better and mm-hmm. I'm fixed. And so well, we, we buy ourselves more drinking time, yeah. don't you? We go like, I can do that. So yeah. I must be in control so I can drink. <laughs> yeah. So I have my horrendous week of detox and I'm still shaking when I leave, you know, after four weeks. And um, and I think, oh, I've got it this time. I've got it. And I truly believe that. They're, like I see myself as two parts of me and there's Kyra and then there's the addiction Kyra and we're at war, you know, constantly. Mm. And I get to the point I don't know who's speaking. Is it me or is it my addiction? Am I really wanting to leave because I'm better or is it? So I just did this really cringy 4 a.m. epiphany to a higher power at the last admission and just said, please help, I want change. And and I was contemplating, do I go to a long-term, you know, I was like, I don't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to be 20 years sober and identify as an alcoholic and I don't want to do long-term. And then at 4 a.m. I thought, my kidney, I'd just been in full-blown renal failure and went to the Alpha for three nights while in rehab and my liver's shot and I'm thinking, what are you doing, Kyra? You're choosing between long-term and death. There's no choice here. Wait, you want to get better? Just do it. Do the work. Shut up. Stop trying to steer the ship and go. And I did. Wow. I woke up. That is an Yeah, I woke up and my roommate, who's a beautiful girl, Emma, and I said, Emma, I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to long-term. And she went, oh, oh thanks, God. And I said, I was so worried, you know. And, and I said, there's no, what am I deciding about? What? There's no work to rush off to. I've got nothing but recovery to focus on. And I'm choosing, oh, should I go home on my own again and, you know, fail miserably because I know yeah. I would or try this. So they suggested a few rehabs and I knew of others that had been to the buttery with good outcomes and long-term sobriety and I was mucking around with other princess long-terms and went nah straight to buttery straight in yeah that's great and how has it been like since you've been here just the biggest thing for me I'm quite rehab experienced um has been the therapeutic community approach because I've had no... Is that very different to other places? Extremely different. Oh, would you mind telling me how? I've been trying to sort of pinpoint the big differences, but I would say what really threw me 
I was walking into a room and there's 28 of us all in a circle when you first go up for our morning meeting and there's not one nurse, there's not one caseworker, there's no staff members and it just works. It flows. There's a um, unspoken hierarchy, obviously, the longer the, the people have been in compared to me, brand new, but it just works. And other rehabs, as soon as a, a non-therapeutic community, as soon as someone walks out, a nurse or someone of authority, we let loose, talking, whispering, laughing, not paying attention because, you know, so I think the, the change is, the difference is we want this and we're not being told or forced or coerced or needing a nurse in the back to make sure we behave. We want to be here and we want to do the work and we make it work. And I guess it's that thing of being guided by other people's yeah. lived experience. Yes. Um, and knowing yeah. that you guys have to set your own boundaries. Yes. And, and it's made me be so much more accountable for my actions, for how I portray myself, how I am in the community because we're a team. And just the, all the little things become big things here. And it just, the biggest thing is autonomy and making it work because you want to, not because there's a nurse or a caseworker or someone saying, come on, listen, you know, I want to. And everything has a reason, a place, even if it's just change or to shit you. They want to see how you respond and, and how you deal with it. And like, so I've come in with the mindset that rules are here and there's a reason, even if I don't know, I might eventually know. And that's happened where I've gone, okay, that makes sense. You know, we have what they call an issue book here. So you write tiny little things you might do. Lights aren't meant to be on before 5 a.m. Um, my light was on at 4.30. I broke the light curfew. Um, I walked past someone and um, did a quick high five. I broke touch. You know, mm. all these little, I'm thinking, why are they bringing them to group and talking about it? Or I took a tea bag and, and hid it in my drawer because we we're running out of tea. That, you know, you can get on a contract for things like that. Mm. What happens when you're on a contract? So, That's a behaviour contract. Yeah, so there's um, a behaviour contract is, is basically something you, you've done that has broken a, a rule and they want to try to stop any consistency of that rule. So say someone takes, eats something from the kitchen or takes it to the house down here to eat later, that's considered stealing. So even though it's part of the buttery and it's come from the kitchen to there and you would have eaten it at lunch anyway, it's considered stealing here. Um, so you'll go on a contract to stop that behaviour. And I haven't been on one, so I can't speak for myself, but what I've observed is just to identify an issue and then prevent it from reoccurring and just make the community aware of it. You put it up on the notice board for everyone to see and it's not punishment. It's just to try and change your behaviour and yeah. thinking. I guess it's accountability, yes, isn't it? Yes, it's huge because as addicts or speaking for myself, um, don't have that. It's all about me. It's about um, what I need, my ego, um, getting alcohol, drinking alcohol, disposing of alcohol. It's just my brain is wired around me, 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 me. I, 
I'm ashamed to admit I don't think about my daughter. You know, she's with my mum and dad at, at, at that time. And Is I'm, she there now with that? Yeah. So we, when I did my back, went on work cover, I couldn't afford the mortgage. So had to sell, unfortunately, which then spiralled more drinking. And I'm, you know, 38, back with the folks and my daughter. And I'm thinking, I'm meant to be married with 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and the golden retriever bounding around the backyard. What the fuck happened? Mm. My husband's gone. He's moved on with two kids. And I've sold my beautiful home I built with my daughter. I've got a broken back I can hardly move I'm back with my parents I'm an alcoholic there was never I mean if you needed any more messages from the universe to um to sort shit out yes. it's kind of it, it's kind of like keeps coming at you doesn't yes. it yes because there, there is this I don't know how it happens but there's this thing where when you when you're pushing up against mm. stuff Mm-hmm. Again, going against your authenticity mm-hmm. in a way of what you where you need to be, mm-hmm. shit just comes flying back at you. Yes. As soon as you change that momentum, yes, and start going in the direction, yeah, all it like good things start oh, to come your way. Oh, and it does. And I I resisted AA. I resisted um, progress and change and recovery because I'm thinking they're all talking crap. I don't understand. I'm like I'm living the life of I'm my wildest dreams and thinking. How? How do you, you know, I'm in this pit of hopelessness and helplessness. And then step by step you do and I'm seeing that and the hope and, and, and things come back and not even materialistic but relationships and hope and love and future and dreams and it's being up here in nature and I love the warmth and and the tropical flowers and I feel the environment here is that is that is that different to the other places that you've been absolutely so for me, a lot of them have been more hospitalised, um, very medical associated, so nurses, doctors, and, and even the actual brick and mortar, you know, it's very insular, isolating, um, nowhere to exercise and walk around. The small small buildings or other ones have been in near the city and it's all smoke and fog and traffic and um, so having this space here, having more autonomy, very strict still and very program orientated, but holistic approach as opposed to more medical base, which they all have their purpose and where you are on your timeline of recovery. But for me, um, this, I feel alive. Mm. No. I can see it too. And, yes. and um, one of the, Moana, when I spoke mm. to her, she was talking about the feeling of being here and the history yes. of how, how many yes. people have come here just yes. like her, yes. just like you, yeah. and they've, ta- they've transformed. Well, there's that song too, um, I forget the singer. Paul oh, Kelly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And talked, you know, sang about the buttery. And um, I, I like exploring and went up and there's railway tracks and then it got talking to Casework. Oh, yeah, that, they used to all go past and throw lollies and little supplies over the fence and all the buttery people line up and, and that was quite a few years ago. But they're talking about when this was an actual buttery and there's, all, there's so much history here and yeah. it's, yeah, even like I love the 
it's hardly got heating. You can hear each other through the walls, but it's got okay the vibe and the um, it's nostalgic and and there's even you look in cupboards and there's timelines. People have done their height and left their name and you know uh, Kylie 2000 and you look back and, and people leave artwork around signed and dated and there's years and years of, of beautiful history and so between the actual environment and their grounds the flowers the trees herbs veggie gardens it's um, a real I guess a holistic approach as opposed to medical based and and very clinical, um, oh. which, like I said, always has its place. But this, by far, has um, surpassed my like all the experiences I've had in emergencies or wards or rehabs or detoxes. This is um, the most beneficial for me. You've been listening to To Their Door, a podcast that tells the 50-year history of the buttery. And thanks to all the storytellers. Join us next episode when we speak with a rock and roll legend who got his life back when he found his way to their door. You have been listening to Mandy Nolan and George Catsey. This is an Authentic You media production.